2: this on hello? hello we're all science people science
3: exactly evolution does some pretty
4: funky things there's chemistry in here there's biology in here the
2: old question in science is how do you know that achievement equals skill times effort that's the recipe for success
4: i'm about to show you something so cool to blow your mind
2: we can make the world better for everybody starting now Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to askbillnye.com. I'm sure it's there in your bookmarks. You can also check me out on all the social media that the kids use to find out about our upcoming guests. I'm joined once again by science writer, editor, and dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Hello, Corey.
4: Bill, greetings and salutations. Uh, You know, I've been thinking a lot lately about one of my first experiences with you, one of my most memorable experiences with you. uh, When we first met and we first talked about uh, having me work with you on your book that became Undeniable, and I asked you why you want to write this book. And you said, without missing a beat, I want to change the world. And it's like, of course you do. That's what you want to do. It's what I want to do. It's you know wh- what we all want to do. We want to make the world a better place. And right now, it feels like a lot of the time, it feels like we're going in the wrong direction. And we're all <laughs> trying to figure out, okay, what do we do? How do we make it better? And all these people who have traditionally been on the sidelines, a lot of scientists, science journals that have traditionally stayed in a nonpartisan role – feel like they need to step up and do their part of you know how do you, how do they change the world we have somebody here who has been a very powerful voice in that and i think for many people a very startling voice uh in that conversation
2: yes yes my friends our guest today is dr holden thorpe he is a chemist and inventor formerly the chancellor of the university of north carolina at chapel hill and provost of washington university in st louis And now he's the editor-in-chief of Science. We're talking about Science the Magazine, not Science the Human Enterprise. Dr. Holden Thorpe, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Holden? Please do, and it's great to be on with you guys. Let's just start right here. You wrote an editorial recently entitled, Trump Lied About Science. I did write that, yeah. (laughs) Well, what did he lie about, just for our listeners
3: who are still tuned in? When Bob Woodward... Uh, revealed the recording of Trump revealing that he had known all along that COVID was a dangerous and deadly disease that didn't just strike old people. Uh, I think that it was psychically devastating for scientists to hear their president, who we all assumed was not paying attention in the briefings or uh, who was being protected from this information by his people. But uh, when we heard in his own voice uh, something that many of us assumed saying that he had known all along that it was a this was a devastating disease, I just think that was really tough for a lot of people who are working so hard to get us past this. I mean when we're when I'm writing these editorials, the main thing I'm thinking about is the scientist who has got you know two kids at home who aren't in school her husband's job has been affected by the pandemic and she's still figuring out some way to go in there and stand at the bench and get us a vaccine and she comes home and turns the news on after countless hours on her feet and standing there or staring at the screen trying to figure out something and she hears her president undermining everything she's doing so those are our readers and that's who I've been trying to speak for but uh, that editorial comes at the end of five months of these. So you can talk about some of those well, if you want. Well, it does
4: get to the question of you know, what do you want to achieve with an editorial like that? Is it giving voice to the scientific community? Is it trying to make a, you know, a, a change that you know, the broader media can pick up?
3: Yeah, so I wrote the first one of these tough pieces in March, which was called Do Us a Favor. It was after two things happened. One, Trump sent out that tweet, pretty famous now in March, saying that it was just the flu. And then he had this meeting with the pharmaceutical executives who were working on the vaccine, where he said, do me a favor, speed it up. Um, Well, of course, everyone who could was working as hard as, as they could already, that we didn't need the president to admonish us to speed up as though we wouldn't well, do it fast if he hadn't And asked to us.
2: sort of take credit for speeding it up. Right. Yeah.
3: Not sort of. I mean, he certainly tried to do that. Those two things inspired me to step a little further outside what Science Magazine has done in the past. I mean, my predecessors were certainly strong and outspoken about climate regulations in particular. But, you know, we had this custom that we always said the administration instead of the president's name. The night before we dropped, uh, do us a favor, and it says President Donald Trump in the first sentence. I was on the phone with my editor. and I said, should we do this? And she said, yeah, we don't have any choice.
4: What has the response been like to those?
3: Well, of course, there's a few emails that come in, not nearly as many as you would expect from People who don't agree with me about politics, who say, you know, I've been a subscriber for twenty-five years and, you know, I don't agree with you about this. There's very few of those. I mean, the the vast majority of response is people who aren't in a position to speak out uh, because they work for the federal government or they're at conservative universities where they fear speaking out or you know, for whatever reason, who just write in and say, thank you for speaking for us. And those are all emails that I'll cherish the rest of my life, some of them.
2: Well, the thing is, it's just such an extraordinary time. Let me ask you this, though, just specifically about Warp Speed, this project Warp Speed to get corporations and laboratories to work as hard as they can to develop a vaccine. Do you have an opinion about the success of Warp Speed?
3: Yeah, well, first I have to give my sort of journalism disclosure that until three days before it was announced that Mansef Salawi was going to direct Operation Warp Speed, he and I were on the board of a startup company together. He, he resigned from the board, uh, so I actually knew he was going to be picked a few days beforehand. So with that caveat, I mean, I think he's an excellent choice. And the reason you need somebody like him is that I mean, we could debate whether it's a good thing that the only way you can get a vaccine to people is through the pharmaceutical companies. But right now, that's the only mechanism we have.
2: Is this good or bad? I mean, writ large for science.
3: I think that there was no way around it having to be a collaboration with industry, because the only way you can get a vaccine to hundreds of millions of people is by collaborating with the companies, at least in the system we have now.
2: But then in this one case of vaccine warp speed and so on, is this good that, hey, we got a problem, we're going to go solve it? Hey, or is this a result of decades of sort of not funding basic research, of not being ready for this sort of thing, even though literally books have been written about a coming pandemic? Well, I think it's a bunch
3: of things. I mean, First of all, I think there's a lot of things that happened in basic research that if we didn't have them, we'd be in much worse shape now. The polymerase chain reaction being at the top of the list, but also a technique that we use to image the structures of biomolecules called cryo-EM, cold electron
2: microscopy. Yeah, Electron, who doesn't love electron microscopy, people?
3: One's a way of
4: amplifying the DNA so that you can test for the presence of the virus, and the other is a way for looking at the structure of the virus, is that correct?
2: Yeah. Now routinely done by high school students, polymerase chain reaction. And electron microscopy is just this amazing thing where electrons act like waves if you treat them right. It's just amazing.
3: Yeah. I mean, the technique allows you to do something we never could have imagined when I was in graduate school, which is to get the structure of a large molecule without
2: growing a crystal of it. Guy, I'll tell you, you know, everybody's hero is Rosalind Franklin, who just somehow figured out (laughs) man how to get a side shot of DNA. I want to
4: pick up on something you were saying earlier. There's been all this progress in the polymerase chain reaction and electron microscopy, that there are all these incredible scientific tools that we have. At the same time, I was struck by one of the sentences in in your editorial, this may be the most shameful moment in the history of US science policy, that we have on the one hand these incredible advances going on, and at the same time a sense that as a society we're not doing a very good job of harnessing them. Why that disconnect? And are things getting worse? Are they getting better? Is this just a chronic problem that we're in a bad blip right now? What's your take on that?
3: Oh, I think that uh, support for expertise has been eroding for 40 or 50 years. I don't think science has helped itself very much. I'm very grateful to the two of you and other people who do what you do to try to get our message out. We're obviously in a situation where we need to do a lot more of that. So, you know, the the people who have had the opportunity, mostly politicians to first of all degrade science as it relates to the environment, then as it relates to the teaching of evolution, support for stem cell research and now our public health infrastructure, these folks have been pounding away and we haven't figured out a way to hit back. And part of that, I think, is and I hope this will be a permanent change from this, is that scientists have long had this view that, oh, well, we, we're the objective people. We stare at our spreadsheets and we stare at our screens and we work in the lab and then we put stuff in the journals and it's not our job to worry about what other people do with it because we have to maintain this aura of objectivity. And the truth is that science is funded by governments Almost all of it has a political implication of one way or another. And uh, for us to pretend like we can sit on the sidelines, I think, has been unfortunate. And I'm hopeful that as I see my siblings at the other journals starting to speak out along with me, that, um, you know, when we get past this, the Trump presidency and the pandemic, whenever that happens, that we won't go back to this hands-off approach that we've had, and we'll do a better job of partnering with people like the two of you who know how to communicate this stuff better than we do.
4: We do what we can, but it's, we're, we're dropping the bucket.
2: Asking that question another way here, let's, you know, this is a call-in show, Holden, so we have a voicemail uh, about the space race. Let's uh, roll that digital recording.
0: Hi there, big fan. I have a question about the politics of science you know, back in the sixties, um, you know, during the Cold War, we were able to kind of win the space race or at least, you know, keep up pace uh, by using American exceptionalism as motivation for uh you know for these wonderful discoveries and advancements in in the space exploration front. Is there a way that we can maybe kind of rekindle that um, and try to use that to, I guess, re-glorify expertise in a world where it's been sort of Seigned, um over the last few years. Just wondering your thoughts on that. Thank you. Yeah,
3: that's a really sharp question, because if you look back to that time in history, you had two things that happened. One is in 1945, when World War II ended. Uh, Vannevar Bush wrote his paper, Science, the Endless Frontier, which took advantage of the fact that at the time, the American support for science was possibly at its highest
2: point. And, and Vannevar Bush, was the, uh, what was his role? He was a poli- kind of political operative
3: who was also an excellent scientist, and he had many ad- advisor, science advisor kinds of roles in the government before the establishment of the official science advisor. And so FDR, at the end of World War II, asked him to write a report which was delivered to President Truman but it's kind of the Magna Carta of American science. And it lays out the rationale for why we should have funded science by the government. And it took advantage of the fact that it was well known in America that science had, in some ways, won the war. Now, thankfully, we don't think about nuclear weapons the same way we did in 1945. So I always have to put that caveat in there.
2: We think about radar uh, very favorably. We think about computing and code breaking or encryption very favorably. Sure. And those are also derived from all that World War II money spending. Yeah. So that was a high point for American science. And then Sputnik
3: created another one because it motivated a lot of people to want to go into science and engineering. That was really the high point of American respect for science. So the question is a really interesting. I'm a
2: product of that. You know, I'm of that age. My parents were freaked out, were quite concerned about Sputnik. And I remember going out on this intersection where I grew up in Washington, D.C. and watching Echo One, which was a balloon used in the hopes of bouncing radio waves off it. And so I went on to become an aerospace engineer because of this flipping Sputnik thing. That's awesome. Well, it just shows you how one guy at the top can just hire this B team and just make a mess out of stuff. So we got to work, I believe, we have to work the problem from the outside. Right. Yeah, agreed. Do you think this election is going to be a tipping point? Do you think it's going to swing back the other way? Uh, Well,
3: seems like there's an excellent chance that Biden will win. I think if he does... He's got the biggest challenge any U.S. president has ever been given because he's got to completely reset this COVID response and he's got to do it coming from behind. And as you were just saying, if we get, are lucky enough to get the vaccine, getting it to everyone is one of the greatest logistical challenges the country has ever faced. If Trump wins, then it's a tipping point of another variety because it's going to take a lot to inspire people to push on for another four years when a lot of the institutions that we count on to keep America going, including science, uh, are constantly degraded by the administration.
1: Stick around for more Science Rules after this. Science rules is back.
4: Now, you were saying earlier you were talking about this as something that's been going on for four decades or more. That this is a long erosion. I think there is a temptation to you think of these in terms of short term problems that maybe we can just find a short term solution and hey, it'll be better after the next election. How do we deal with that long term erosion of, of scientific expertise, scientific respect, uh, the role of science in society as a, as a whole? How did that erosion happen, and how do we turn this ship around?
3: Yeah, so there's a great book by two professors named Turner and Eisenberg called The Republican Reversal, and it's all about how Barry Goldwater and Richard Nixon were big environmentalists, but when Reagan ran for president, he, because of sophisticated polling data, sophisticated for the time, was able to figure out that it was politically useful to run against the environment. And that really was a turning point. You know, that's what undid what we had from World War II and from the space race. And it's just been this slow burn after after
2: that. You know, he um, Reagan took the solar panels off the roof of the White House and abandoned teaching the metric system because it was believed this was some sort of hippie kind of energy and the metric system was commie. And uh, those, I think, were both just bad assessments. But you've made a couple references. I mean, I'm all worried about the coronavirus. I'm of a certain age. I am ever so slightly concerned about dying slowly and an agonizing death. Yes, that is on my mind. But along with that, I, for decades, have been very concerned about climate change. And you have made a couple references to climate change. And to kick this off... Uh, I'd like to play a couple of voicemails, and I'd like you to talk about it, as we say these days, on the other
0: side. Hey there, Bill. I've got a question about the politics of science. I live here in Texas, and it seems so often that uh, climate change, why is it so often debated as an, uh, uh, a political thing when it's been researched? And we've got the facts on it. Why is it a politics thing? I don't
4: quite understand it. And then we have a second voicemail. (laughs) Uh,
0: Yes, my question is in regards to human-caused climate change. Since forcing people into believing unproven scientific theories goes against everything science stands for, human-caused climate change is an unproven scientific theory. So why do you believe it's okay to force people into believing human-caused climate change when it's not actually science? Thank you.
4: Well, I, lo- I love I love that go. little thank you at the end,
2: <laughs> so where did this come from? I'm pretty sure it came from the fossil fuel industry, yeah, I mean, I think it may be even before that because it could
3: just be that when people started to assess this, they realized there was more of a divide about the environment than they expected, and that was something that could be exploited politically. but as far as the two questions are concerned, you know, another thing that's hurt us here is the way this kind of thing gets reported in the media. It's always, here's a news story about climate change, and here's a quote from the one guy at some place who doesn't think it's real. And I'm always talking to my news colleagues about this. Do we have to have that quote from the one guy who thinks it's real, who makes it look like there's 20 or 30 percent of the scientists out there who uh, think that we're making all this up? I mean, that's just a part of science communication that somehow we need to fix. It's the same thing has happened with this on
2: COVID many times. Yeah, this tradition of showing showing both sides of the story.
4: What, what kind of responses do you get when you talk to colleagues? Because you're talking to them from a position of unusual expertise. You're talking about the you're talking to them not just as you know another reporter or as a consumer of the news.
3: You're the editor of science. <laughs> Well, I'm not sure I've really taken that up with the right kind of people to give you a response, but I did run a university that is a top journalism school, so I learned some things from them. I would say, you know, the, getting these things on record, if they got them from somebody and they know they're right, they, they feel like if they make it a more interesting story that they ought to put it in there.
4: I, I do. I think one issue that certainly that I've seen is, you know, just the splintering of the media landscape that it used to be, you know, for better or for worse, you know, you had three television networks that dominated all the news that you would hear on TV. And you had, you know, a a handful of big newspapers that sort of directed what most of the local papers would write. And so there was, you know, a pretty strong mainstream view. I feel like now you need to get your voice out in many, many more places to, you know, to address each of these smaller audiences. I feel like that's one of the big challenges.
2: It's whack-a-mole. When you get in, if you start going down the Twitter rabbit hole, there's too many moles to whack on the head. We got to get to young people so that in the future decades, we have people who are engaged.
3: Well, yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I think that I worry about Tony Fauci's stamina uh, because <laughs> he's on every single podcast and Video interview, and I mean, sometimes I see him on things, and I'm like, Tony, why did you, you know, take time to do that? But he's just decided he's going to communicate to everyone who asks him to, and in this, for given his extraordinary energy and the intensity of this, that makes sense. But it's not a long term solution to this problem. We
2: could ask the same about you, sir. My goodness. Oh, I'm I'm excited to be here with you guys. This is not sustainable. Like, in, in other words, the United States cannot remain competitive if it keeps ignoring science. And of course, another couple hundred thousand people are going to die, wouldn't have otherwise died if we don't uh, get this thing under control. Easy to say. But is there a reason then that more scientists, people like Dr. Fauci and, and you, are not in politics and... Do you think there should be more scientists in politics? Well, for sure, we
3: should have more. It's not a skill set that travels along frequently with the other skills that it takes to be a scientist, but there have been a few important exceptions and we we need more. Uh, Something we have at the AAAS that we're proud of is a program where a lot of PhDs who want to get involved in the government come and do what we call a policy fellowship, where they're placed in various government offices for, um, for two years. And that has been a very successful program. So a lot of these rank and file uh, people that you're talking about, they come from there. But it doesn't solve the problem of how you get more folks in Congress and the White House.
2: So when you say it's been successful, having these fellows in congressional offices, you say it's been successful. How do you measure that? And if it's been so successful, how did we end up in this mess?
3: (laughs) Yeah, well, let's say it's necessary, but not sufficient. It's successful in that the outcomes in terms of whether these folks get jobs in the government where they're doing something meaningful, those outcomes look excellent. But, you know, it's still there's hundreds of thousands of people in the government and we're talking about, you know, 50 to 100 fellows every year. So, you know, look, I, I think the biggest thing here is that we have to have a much more deliberate partnership with elected political leaders who want to help us push this forward. And I think what happens is when the Republicans are in We spend all our time talking about how they're messing up the environment and now COVID. Then the Democrats get in and everybody goes, oh, now we can take a break. But in fact, if Biden wins, we've got to work even harder to make sure that he works with us to try to correct this, because he's going to have a much bigger platform than any of us have.
2: So who's us? Is the scientific community a real community? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a completely monolithic community.
3: There are plenty of practicing scientists who write to me who disagree with me. Um, but I think it's a community of people who believe in evidence and inductive reasoning and in revising our ideas when we get new data and all the things that we value in the practice of science.
4: Well, I, I feel like for politicians just as for the public at large, people have to be convinced that there is a benefit in following the science and adopting a scientific mindset and adopting uh, critical thinking. It seems to me that part of the challenge here is that there's a significant part of the population that doesn't believe that. And even a significant you know, number of politicians who feel like whether it's just out of political power or out of you know, some higher principles, they don't believe that your type of science is the path forward, or that that's the best path for them. Or
2: has value. Or has value.
4: And I assume with your editorials, with all the other things that you're doing, you're trying to change that. And are there other things that we could be doing or should be doing?
3: Oh, well, I I can't help but give a little more background on that, because it's such an interesting point. But if we go back to Vannevar Bush's paper, uh, one of the things he does in there that you just alluded to is that he doesn't say we should have science because we want to understand nature and we think nature is beautiful and knowledge is, is great. He says, you know, we should have science because of the war on disease, to have a strong military and to have an economically successful workforce. So there's always been this bargain about federal science support. And what we've allowed to happen is we've allowed people to say, okay, well, I'll take all this medical stuff But I don't want climate change and things from social science. Well, take all these weapons,
2: too, these extraordinary weapons. Sure,
3: yeah. So somehow we have to figure out how to stop people from picking and choosing. And the problem, the thing that makes that hard is that it's politically useful for us in terms of getting more science funding to make it a straight-up bargain. But we have to have our own principles going along with that. And then we've allowed that to to erode over time. Right.
4: Well, you just heard those those two voicemails of the two different people talking about climate change. You know, they're sort of living in in parallel realities. How do you bring those realities together? Or, or do you not need to reach everybody? Do you just need to reach a few more people?
3: Oh, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I write for other scientists mostly. And I think that's a really hard challenge. So I do talk to a lot of science communications folks. And I think Somehow you have to figure out how to talk to the people who don't agree with us in a way that appreciates their point of view in, in a manner that most scientists struggle to, to adopt.
2: I am asked every day, how do I talk to my crazy uncle who insists that climate change is not human-caused and uh, how do you convince somebody who won't accept the? How do you get through to these people? And I do not know. I have been working on it for decades except to say that we have gotten through to young people. Only now and then do you meet a young person who is a climate denier. And uh, the other thing I wonder about is empathy. Are we really, by working to be objective, are scientists not being empathetic to people, who like this guy who called in with his, frankly, smarmy thing about Human-caused climate change is not real science, and we're over here just shaking our radio, audio heads. Getting through to people and being empathetic, I think, is uh, something that's very difficult.
4: Right. There has there has to be some emotional or some personal reason that that caller felt compelled to call and feels so strongly about this thing. You, you don't just look at it like, like, I'm looking at these data points, and I these data points are making me angry. There's clearly, there's
2: something else going on there. He's picked up the phone and bothered to call Bill Nye and give him a piece of his mind. And why is that? Why does he feel so strongly? And then how, how do we empathize with this point of view and embrace it is a, something I have yet to figure out. But Holden, I, I know you have. So just go ahead and tell everybody.
3: <laughs> I haven't figured it out either. But <laughs> like I said, our, my audience is other scientists. So, you know, in fact, I tell our folks frequently that we write for other scientists and if the public gets something out of it, that's great. But mainly, you know, we need to partner with the news media and folks like you to get the, the message out because, you know, it's hard to write for Somebody who is in the National Academy and somebody else who's a general reader from the public. We, you know, we we don't do
2: that. It's literally a different vocabulary. When you kind of cut
4: loose, you let your voice out. You write these editorials. You wade into the political territory. Do you worry about a backlash? Do you worry that scientists taking you know taking on what's perceived as a clear political position is actually going to produce a reaction in the public of people saying, "Oh, well." now they're just political players. Now they're, now they're not credible. Now they're not objective. Uh, do you worry about that kind of a pushback?
3: I think that ship sailed. There's a Pew study that just came out a couple of weeks ago that says that only 20% of Republicans have a lot of confidence in science. So I guess it's definitely worth trying to preserve that last 20%. But if we've lost 80 then maybe we should focus on doing what we think is right and not overthink this, which is, I think, what we've done in the past. And the argument has always been, and this is true, that the biggest increases in science funding have really come because of two Republican senators, Arlen Spector and Roy Blunt. Those are the two people who have been the kind of sequential champions of the NIH, so, you know, I think part of the sheepishness in the past has been that oh, we don't want to irritate those two guys because we need them to give us our increases. Well, they're not giving us our increases because of climate change and astrophysics. They're giving us the, the increases because of medicine, uh, strong defense, and the economic benefits of science. And those aren't going to go away. So I guess I'm less worried about that than some people. Is that enough?
4: Is that a good... Backbone that original sort of Faustian bargain that Vannevar Bush made in 1945 is that still a good bargain that we can say? Oh, look, yeah, you know, here are the practical benefits you get from science. So you know, let's just kind of like keep supporting this whole institution and can we keep going that way?
3: Uh, well, I wrote a column about this a uh, few weeks ago, and there's a great book about it called Freedom's Laboratory by Audra Wolfe. I think the the danger of Bush's argument is that it is this inherently instrumental argument, but it's politically very, very successful.
2: What do you mean by instrumental?
3: That means that the only reason that people want to support science is because they're going to get something that they care about in return. I listened to your episode with Jennifer Doudna, which was terrific. When she published, she and Charpentier published their paper with us, which we're very excited was in science. The paper... Was we thought, or my predecessors thought, an excellent basic science paper in bacterial genetics. But you know, we have this program where we select a certain number of papers every week to shop aggressively to the media. Doudna's paper was not selected. It, it, it was <laughs> it was a science paper, so it was still very important. But our our media. Team. Nobody thought this was. They just thought it was a very important. They, they thought it was too obscure, science. and the
4: public wouldn't respond yeah. to it. Or,
3: well, yeah. So, see, we didn't know it was going to give us CRISPR at the time. It was of all the fundamental insights for sure. But it wasn't obvious it, it wasn't a paper that said a method for uh editing genomes that will be translatable to uh, every biological problem we have it It was an excellent paper in basic bacterial genetics, and so this bargain has the potential to crowd something like that out if we're not careful
2: so this is why we want to invest in basic research I say all the time so. Are there any examples of scientists who've become politicians? The guy I always think about is Rush Holt, who's a physicist from New Jersey. But he retired after a while enough of this congressional squabbling. Do you know any other scientists who are good who are going to be good politicians?
4: We've got, an, we've got an astronaut on the ballot.
2: So I think one
3: example would be Nancy Goroff, who is running for Congress in New York. She's a chemist. And the chemists are all very excited about her campaign, and uh, I think it's getting a lot of attention from the scientific community, and I think she'll make a big difference. You know, one other person who certainly has a lot of technical expertise that's in the Congress is Donna Shalala, and she and I worked closely together when I was at North Carolina, and she was at Miami, and she's, she's such a smart health scientist, and she's Making a big difference.
2: Kendra Horn from Oklahoma is very supportive of NASA and science writ large because she sees the economic value. But here's something I've thought about quite a bit for your comment. You might say, a person like us might say to him or herself, well, what we need are more scientists in Congress or more scientists in the Senate, more scientists in the administration. But I say all the time, being a congressperson, a member of Congress, or working as a bureaucrat in the executive branch, is a different skill than being a chemist and working on the bench, as you guys refer to it. I'm just not sure it would really help to have people wringing their hands, questioning every outcome, trying to present both sides. I'm not sure that's really what you want. But what we do want, I think, is for everyone in society to be scientifically literate, to have a rudimentary understanding. How about better than rudimentary? have a pretty good science education and appreciation for life science, physical science, and planetary science. It would be, it would be a wonderful thing.
1: Science Rules will be right back.
0: Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle?
1: You're listening to Science Rules.
4: As you were saying earlier, there's an emotional aspect to all of this. You know, being able to express some empathy and have people understand not just the facts of science, but sort of the process and the emotion of science. I feel like we're all born, we all come into the world with a certain amount of that. I'd love to hear just like what is your own story of how did you end up in the sciences? What what made you a science person growing up?
3: My mom ran the community theater in my hometown of Fayetteville, North Carolina. She did that for 50 a years.
4: traditional path into the sciences, of course, community, yeah, community so theater. Yeah, I
3: grew, so I grew up in the theater, but I was a terrible actor, and so I was more useful fixing things. So I learned to fix the lighting board and the sound equipment and various things that get broken at the theater, and that kind of got me into thinking analytically. And then I had a wonderful high school chemistry teacher named Bill Winfield who turned me on to chemistry.
2: I say all the time, man, I had, I had this amazing physics teacher and that's how I, yeah. It's always a story, isn't it? But you know, the
3: only um, scientists I knew or people who knew science were physicians. So I went to college, I was going to be pre-med. I went through, did pre-med and was about to go to, to medical school But I had another great teacher named Tom Meyer who let me work in his lab. And once I started working in his lab, that's when I realized I was gonna be a scientist.
4: But hold on, I mean you're you're making this very powerful description of you know these personal connections with great educators. And not everybody gets that. You know, not everybody had those experiences or accesses to, to those experiences. So I mean maybe that's part of what we just need more of is letting more people into science at the very sort of interpersonal level. Growing up, you know that's when we talk about science education. Uh, you know, it's typically measured in terms of you know, do you know the distance of the sun, and do you know the number of stable elements. But what you're describing is the much more common story I hear of, of how people actually get engaged and get moved by it.
3: I, I almost always hear the same story, and I think what has happened is, as you're alluding to, we have not equitably distributed that across the country. I went to a very strong high school. I went to an outstanding public university. I had access to all of those things. uh, And I also had fixed everything in the theater. So I felt like I could do whatever uh, people give me.
4: Corey. Bill, I hear something. I don't think that's the sound of, of science falling apart. I think that's thunder Ah, uh ah, thunder, 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 which is the sound produced by lightning, which tells me that it is time for the lightning round. Holden, this means we will ask you lightning fast questions and you, we hope, will provide lightning fast answers.
2: Okay, I'll give it a shot. Would you want a scientist to be president? Yes. Uh, from your point of view, who's been the best scientific president so far? I would say, um, I think that Barack Obama
3: talked about science the best of any of the presidents we've had. Now, what about a scientist on the Supreme Court? That would also be a great thing because they get a lot of cases that are in patent law and things like that where they could use some technical expertise.
2: If we wanted everyone to be scientifically literate, what would you change? Uh, I
3: would change the amount of funding that we give to K-12 through education. I'd give it more, and I'd
2: make it more equitable. I'd take it one step further down. I would start with pre-kindergarten. That has a huge effect on people, All right, on students, on us. Which of your editorials has gotten the most attention? Do
3: us a favor, got the most attention if you go by all of the various metrics. But I would say the one we talked about earlier, Trump lied about science, has probably had a bigger impact, and it's also put a lot of high numbers
2: on the board. So uh, why is your magazine, Science, the best scientific magazine? Uh, Because
3: we cover all areas of science, and we have research, news, and insights. And so we're the best place for scientists to talk to each other that there is. Nature has a pretty good uh, journal, and uh, the editor and I are good friends, and we're happy to be together speaking out
2: for science. Serving slightly different audiences, I think, just a little. And I'm CEO of the Planetary Society, and we have tried for 40 years to be political but not partisan, but this is just crossing a line. Uh, Vote, everybody, and do not vote for the guy who's president right now. Is there something we can do short term about climate change? Well, short term right now we're
3: doing it because we're staying home and we're not driving that much and we're not flying that much. But I think in the outside the pandemic, I think having hard conversations with each other about how much we really do need to travel uh, is important. And in science, this is a big thing because we run these huge meetings with tens of thousands of people. And of course, those meetings are very important for the cities that they're in, and they're very important for networking. But I'm not sure we'll keep doing those forever in the way that we have, and that's something we need to look at.
2: You had a jazz band. You were the Equinox Jazz Band. Is uh, that right? Yeah, that's one.
3: Yeah. <laughs> oh, you have multiple jazz bands? Yeah, well, I've, I've been playing music my whole life, so I've been in a lot of different bands. But yeah. Uh,
2: what's your preferred instrument? Uh, the bass is my preferred instrument, but I actually played the keyboard in, e- in Equinox. Are you writing another musical during the quarantine? Are you working on some more stuff? <laughs> I,
3: prob- <laughs> I have plenty of material, but uh, probably not. I'm, I'm, uh, I got my hands full running this journal in a pandemic.
4: Uh, you're just going to have to release the rough home demos. So you don't have time to go to go. the studio and give them a the polish.
2: <laughs> it is fascinating to me how many scientists are also musicians, yeah, it's it's a you learn a set of rules and then you learn how to be creative
3: within those rules. And that's I, an
2: analog to science. Yeah, the process.
3: Yeah, because we have we have the speed of light and Planck's constant and certain things we can't change, and we learn how to learn new things with with those things being uh, staying the same.
2: <laughs> the constraints of the cosmos. <laughs> this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Holden. So everybody, vote like science depends on it. Our guest today has been Dr. Holden Thorpe. He is a chemist and editor-in-chief of Science Magazine, which is a big deal. And remember, when it comes to voting to save the world, science science rules. rules. If you like science rules, and I hope you do, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. Helps us out and helps out like that guy who doesn't think climate change is caused by people. Even he is listening. So thank you be sure to look at all my socials for more information about any upcoming guests, which we have plenty of. I'm at Bill Nye on everything. And meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail as those few people did today, please give us a call at 201-472-0785 or submit a question at askbillnye.com. The Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and Corey S. Powell. Yeah. Casey Hallford mixed this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. And it's Stitcher, everyone, Science, Science Rules. rules. Hmm.
1: Stitcher.
0: Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle?